Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as a senior correspondent at Yahoo News. And today I'm joined by two very special guests, both of whom are in Kiev. And to give you a sense of who they are, or to tease it anyway, when I set up the Zoom call to do this recording, I titled it Two Gormless Gits in Kiev. <laughs> so yeah, they're both they're both British, both well-known stars of screen and stage. John Sweeney, veteran investigative reporter, formerly at the BBC, author of a new book, which I haven't read, but can recommend anyway, because I know John and I did read some of it. The bits about myself, I think I've read, uh, called Killer in the Kremlin, which we'll talk about in due course. And then I'm also joined by my uh, partner in crime, James Rushton, who's uh, also a contributor and my co-byline on most of my Yahoo reporting about the war in Ukraine and Western security assistance. Uh, Welcome to both. You're out in Padil, in the suburbs of Kiev, not really suburbs, it's like a posh, sort of the Williamsburg of Kiev, right? And you're both at John's flat. Yeah, it's it's north of the center, pretty close to... And I should say, I'll probably post some screen captures of our conversation, but they're doing this without power. But plenty of red wine, evidently, because it is John Sweeney's flat after all. We have, uh, I'm not sure, actually. Um, Let's see if I can. Have you seen the Sweeney bar? Um, I can't say. I've not not been to your flat. There is a, a, a substantial bar, actually, which I've got red wine, gin, whiskey. All right. Well, when I, next one I come over, we'll, um, I'll help you empty your stocks. How's that? <laughs> we were just at D's around the corner the other night, John, and uh, Amy ordered the red that you had two bottles of when you were here. You know, pizza <laughs> place. And she made a point of mentioning it, which is how I got the idea to have you on the show again. <laughs> so for those who don't know, because I think the listenership of this show tends to be a bit more serious, but John and I had a podcast during lockdown. What was it called? Two Boozy Hacks? Uh, yeah. Uh, the Last Call. The Last Call with, last two, call boozy with two Boozy Hacks. Yeah. And we just, I don't know, it was mostly about American politics, British politics. And there was a leitmotif to the show. It was whose country is more fucked at the moment, yours or mine. <laughs> and I think actually now I can say with high confidence that yours is. Yeah, ours is definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ours, is, uh, ours is because of Brexit. Ours is because of a crashing economy. Ours is, is because the uh, the ruling party is at war with itself. However, mm-hmm. it's absolutely true to say that we gave Zelensky a very, very beautiful you did. Um, podium. Originally built, I think, in 1097. So... Older than the scotch that you're drinking, Mike. I'm drinking and, water, mate. It's only like it's a quarter to noon here. In 15 <laughs> minutes, in 15 minutes, I can officially inhabit my role as a high-functioning alcoholic and pop over. Anyway, I have to say that I felt proud to be British. Uh, I also felt very proud to be British because the people on the stage with Zelensky was not the prime minister or the other political leaders, but it was the speakers of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, just projecting a simple thing, that our ancient democracy cares about democracy more than power. Right. And it felt beautiful. And actually, the last week or so in Kiev has been very depressed because there's this sense we're waiting for the bombs. Everybody knows that Putin's going to do something nasty, send nasty missiles to Kiev for the anniversary, February 24th of the of the war um, being a year old, or possibly a few days before that. And but this morning at my at my cafe, my um my local cafe where I had breakfast, people were laughing. Yeah. 
And I think they were laughing because Zelensky had played an absolute blinder. James, what I, do you think I, about I, that? I agree. I mean, I, I've always thought, so my Ukrainian friends have what I would call uh, pessimistic optimism. And, you know, they fully believe that they're going to win the war in the long term. But they they also believe that it's it's going to be now, especially, it's going to be drawn out. And take. It's not going to be over months. It's going to be years, right? So, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, the other day, and we were talking about this, and, and she said, you know, is it going to be, is Ukraine going to be like France and the UK after the First World War, with a whole generation, of a lost generation of young men have been wiped down? And it's really difficult to answer that question, because we know that Ukraine is suffering less casualties than the Russians are, but they're still suffering casualties. And it's, again, it's... And they're higher than what Ukraine officially gives out, which I can understand. Well, they don't, yeah, I mean, they don't, they, don't actually, yeah. they don't actually give numbers on their casualties. But, you know, we've both spoken to people, obviously, yeah. as you know, and we've, we've got rough estimates of, of casualties and they're high they're not as high as the russians but again it's an it's a terrible price that they're having to pay for essentially just wanting to be left alone and that's that's the thing it's not it's not a war they entered into by choice it's a war of national survival it's an existential war and it's again it, they're being forced into it a, another thing that you hear from ukrainians is that the best of their society is being sacrificed on the battlefield right it's it's the youngest it's the bravest it's the most selfless that are, that are going out there and fighting the people that didn't hide from the draft office when the first wave of mobilization was called in ukraine although they isn't really that anyway there's still more people wanting to fight from my experience I, I still have ukrainian friends that say oh i want to go fight but there were no spaces right i heard something slightly different and it was depressing but i heard because people now realize i mean there's it's a complete difference if you get to ride in a fancy british or german tank there's a problem with the challenges that nobody's properly understood they drive on the wrong side of the road I mean, you know, it's I don't, I don't. <laughs> the, Can I just say the, 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 the big problem with the challenge is, is, is the, the problem with German tanks is even if you hit the stop pedal, they still want to charge into other countries of Europe, right? So, which might be a beneficial thing. Now they want to send Panthers. You know, Jimmy, like we wrote that piece about uh, Putin no, in, in Volgograd yeah. or Stalingrad. Well, they're, or I mean, they're coming from Poland this time, right? They're, the tanks yeah, right. are coming from Poland. They're not going into Poland. So well, it's a traditional direction. It is a traditional <laughs> direction. But no, I was going to say Rheinmetall, the CEO of Rheinmetall, which is the German arms manufacturer, says we're in talks with the government to provide our most modern main battle tank, the Panther, to Ukraine. Now, the Panther, from what I gather, is the name of a German World War II era tank. So there was some a bit of cringe on social media today and my mentions about this. But by the way, there's a pronunciation thing. We knew uh, I'm, I'm from. Uh, we would call them Panzer tanks. And uh, That's so Panzer, if, yeah, Panzer is Panther. If Panzer is Panther, no, 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 no. The, the, Panzer, Panzer, is, Panzer is tank. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there was so the the first main series of German tanks were Panzer one, Panzer two, Panzer three, Panzer four. We have a train was, spotter. The, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I would be a good military analyst if I didn't know this stuff. But no, that's so why the you know the the term the term tanky, which is in high usage in. today these days, it was basically like a, a left wing anti imperialist who's pretty much pro imperialism because he's endorsing the Russian invasion. I think that the first coinage of tanky was 1956, the Hungarian Revolution. Yeah, and there were a bunch of it was is essentially disaffected Marxists and and actual communists who fell out with the Moscow line. And they coined the term Panzerkommunismus, 
which was basically tank communism, right? Which was essentially an allusion to Nazi invasion of Europe. So this is sort of Panzer has this connotation of aggressive hostile action. But in this case, no, this is aggressive defensive action. So hats off to Germany for pulling the trigger, as it were, on allowing Leopard 2s. And yeah, I mean, but the problem is too, and we can discuss this, maybe we should just do it now. When you have a multiplicity of platforms and vehicle models, types from different countries, it's rather difficult to integrate them into your current armed forces and do the combined arms warfare that Ukraine needs to do to not only defend against what might be a big Russian push, although I, I would argue, and Jimmy and I, we, we have argued that the push is already underway. This massive offensive has been going on since probably January. It's just raw manpower more than... I think push, by the way, I think push is the wrong noun. It's not a push, it's a bleed. Well, an attempted push. They're trying to take more all of the Donbass by March. That seems to be the... Yes, but there is no, um, whatever the nice phrase in German is, the the tip of the spear. What's the phrase? It's it's fine for me, but I know exactly what you mean. It's it's something camp for the spear, the Kampfpunt or something like this, Mm. the punting camp. And (laughs) it's not punting camp, but... But it looks as though, foolishly, what the Russians are doing is just shoving more and more cannon fodder all the way along the front. However, the Ukrainians, so the gossip from my Ukrainian friends is that it's exhausting. They shoot, they kill 50, and then there's another 300 behind them. Then behind the 300, when they're running out of ammo and the, the machine guns are smoking red hot, with this awful slaughter they're compelled to do, then when they're exhausted, then come the good Russian soldiers over the bodies of the corpses. And that is why they've made a bit of progress around Bachman. One of my uh, pals, been to Bachman, said he, he came back and he said, the Ukrainian soldiers said, see that fat dog over there in Bachman. Don't ask why it's fat. Bloody. Yeah. I mean, so there is. I mean, the other story I heard, um, our mutual friend David Patrick Karakos was in Bakhmut himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I spoke on the phone the other day, and he said um, when he was there, the Ukrainians showed him a thermal image of an artillery strike, and they they were hitting Wagner fighters in Bakhmut. You know, so Wagner. Those of listeners of the show, this is the merc- the prime mercenary corps that Russia's relied upon, financed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, Russian oligarch, catering magnate, Putin crony, who seems to be angling for a political role Gangster. himself. Uh, hang on, yeah, but hang on, hang on. So, so the thermal imaging shows Wagner op- operatives making this mad dash, getting hit by artillery. So the shell lands, I don't know, 50 meters from their position. And they're not even phased. They're not even, you know, discombobulated. They just keep going. And he said, I don't care who you are. If you're a human being, I don't care if you're Rambo. When an artillery shell hits your position, you fall down or you jump or you register some kind of physical reaction. And so the the working hypothesis is that these guys are now being, are hopped up on some kind of narcotic Captagon. I mean, they compared it to the the ISIS fighters, the Inhamazi, you know, the guys who just made this mad suicidal dash, just throwing raw meat at the enemy. And that certainly wouldn't surprise me given how little regard, in fact, disdain for human life that Prigozhin and his, uh, his Confederates have. I mean, they've been relying on convicts in Russia who were offered a diminution commutation of their sentence if they went to the front. Now they've said, we don't, we're don't. we not doing convicts anymore. We've got enough, essentially, cannon fodder. Um, well, but anyway. Well, is it, there's a detail there, though. Or is the Ministry of Defense doing it themselves? Because there is some... Or Putin 
I mean, Putin has been using Prigozhin partly as, look at him, Western world. You get rid of me, you'll get Prigozhin. He's worse. Deal with Yeah, well, that's that's one of the theories as to what's happening. The other theory is that Prigozhin and Kadyrov are given this latitude to attack the conventional military structure, particularly Gerasimov, chief of general staff, Shoigu, the defense minister, and uh, Surovikin, who was the, now the former commander of all forces in, in Ukraine. But I don't know. I mean, I hear different things. So the Estonian Foreign Intelligence Service came out with their annual review, putting forward this case that you know Putin essentially relies on his personal relationships, which tend not to be in the MOD or the armed services, but in his own presidential administration and the administrators, essentially. But yes, he, there is this trick that he is allowing the ultras and the uber hawks to run rampant, particularly on social media, criticizing the state of the war, the performance of the military in order to say, as you as you said, you know, after me, the deluge, right? Like this, if you think I'm bad, wait till you see who's waiting in the wings to take over. And yeah, I mean, Prigozhin is, there's no question he's a sociopath. I mean, he's celebrating, a- memorializing the guys who basically chopped up their own comrades from Wagner, POWs traded back, who then got dismembered and beheaded their head smashed in with a sledgehammer in retaliation for not dying on the battlefield. He's a, he is a sociopath, but with Prigozhin, he's a sociopath that's pretty much entirely motivated by self-interest. So you can see a scenario where someone like Prigozhin comes into power in Russia and lays the blame of the Ukraine fiasco, because they all know it's it's a right. disaster privately. They all know it. Um, that lays the blame of this disaster at Putin's door, right? And right. Again, if you're a Russian elite, you might think, well, okay, I just want to get my yacht back. I don't like being trapped in Russia because Russia is not a particularly nice place to be. I prefer going to Paris and London and New York and Miami and all these places I used to go before this guy that I don't really like, but I have to go along with because of fear and because, you know, the various connections that Putin has. Um, if there's someone takes over and and lays all this blame on Putin's doorstep, then I think a lot of people in the West would be happy to make a deal with him if that's if that deal is pulling out of Ukraine. And that's some form of yeah. Well, this is kind of the debate I've had on the show. I mean, you know, Owen Matthews and I have a polite disagreement. He he's of the opinion that Putin simply can't withdraw from Ukraine ever because to lose this war would be the end of his reign and the end of his regime. It's too existential for Russia now. He puts the demarcation point, the loss of Mariupol, right? Sacrificing the land bridge to Crimea, that would be it for Putin. I tend to disagree with that. I think that if he chose to, I put great store by the Timothy Snyder argument that this is a virtual reality dictatorship. And the Russian people, and and Owen will tell you this, he's been to Moscow several times, they are indifferent. They don't care. They're oblivious to what's taking place next door. They pretend like there's not a war on. Uh, And the people who are affected by it, I mean, for instance, today I just saw a day or two old, but, you know, widows of fallen Russian soldiers are being given fur coats. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, ha- and then the coats are taken away when the cameras stop rolling, yeah. by the way. But they're having to sort of genuflect to this regime that sent their husbands to die needlessly and miserably uh, for I can, I can sure. I mean, it's it's pathetic. And if Putin decided, that's it, uh, you know, I'm going to dress up defeat as victory and call it a day. I mean, you know, the Estonian... Foreign Intel Service, I, clearly th- their reports I know are, are very highly valued in the American IC. And I went through it yesterday, line by line, and did a long Twitter thread about some of the key observations. And one of the ones that jumped out is, A, Putin is not, it's sort of a combination of insights. A, Putin is not under any real danger of being taken out or having his regime crumble. His hold on power is secure. B, 
should he lose power, either dying in office or befalling some kind of coup or putsch, don't expect any form of liberalization, much less democratization to happen in Russia. Uh, the next person who comes along is going to be as bad as, if not worse. And this is just a, a harsh reality we have to reckon with here, that Russia is not going to be a normal country, uh, whatever little, happens I'm, in Ukraine. I'm a little wary of, of some of those conclusions. By yeah, the way, yeah. I, I'm, so I'm slightly... Um, I'm a little bit more on Owen Matthews' side um, than you two chaps, but it's not about Maripol, it's about Crimea. Now, Crimea, weirdly, Crimea, I think, is more easily... Uh, the Ukrainians will have an easier job getting Crimea back than they will getting, for example, Donetsk back, because it's right bang next door to, to Russia. Uh, it's just all land. Whereas once they really go in uh, Crimea, it's difficult for the Russians to resupply because of the nature of it being a peninsula. But if the Russians lose that, that's bad. Secondly, I get the fur coats. By the way, there's a friend of mine who, a Ukrainian woman who's got a brilliant Moscow accent, and she's doing something. So it would be bad if it weren't against the current Russian regime. But and I can't tell you what it is because she'd have to kill me. But she talks to a long list of women that want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say some of them sell wine um, and they don't. But she uh, talks to ordinary Russians or Russians with money most days. And she says that 80 percent of them are in favor of the war and support Putin. And I think that's right. However, that support is is part of it is driven by fear and part of it. If you don't know somebody, you trot out the lines. So there are, there are two levels of this Russian um, support for Putin. Officially, it's there. Unofficially, I think, as the body counts rack up, as the fur coats are given and then taken away again, as the, as the cemeteries get bigger, it's going to be a problem. And if they lose something iconic like Crimea, and Crimea is iconic in the way that Maripol isn't, I would suggest, I think Putin is in trouble. Um, or would be in trouble. And I think that's going to happen, not this year, but I don't think this is going to be an endless war. I think that the Americans in particular are very worried about the war finishing too quickly. And then there is a chaos and then you get an Iraq 2.0. But what the Americans would like, can I, just, can I the Ukrainians, I'll give you the date yeah. for the Ukrainians to win the war on November the 5th. 2024. Yeah, you, you mentioned and this to me offline. I, I disagree. I don't think... I, you know, I, disagree. I disagree too. Well, I, the, I think okay. the, the American imperative is to, is to wrap it up quickly because yeah. holding this coalition, particularly European countries such as Germany and France, getting them to agree to security assistance, escalation of security assistance. Now there's this whole wrangle over fighter jets, which we can come to in a minute. This is not an easy diplomatic victory for the Biden administration. This is expending an enormous amount of resources and energy. And there's also a camp in the administration led by Jake Sullivan, who from day one has seen Russia's behavior and seen the Ukraine crisis as a huge inconvenience and distraction from what he would like to do, which is focus on China. That's the 25-year strategic doctrine of this, well, I mean, frankly, the, the U.S. government, whoever's in charge. So I disagree with you, John. I think, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm so why second they... to none in being cynical about my own country and my own government. But to say that they would like to see the, the major ticker take parade type victory for Ukraine only after Biden is reelected. I disagree. I don't think that that's the case at all. Yeah, I totally disagree as well okay. with respect to John. And can I just say as well, if they did want to do that, they wouldn't. You can look at the American security assistance to Ukraine 
And it's not based on any form of artificial timetable. There are, for example, the advanced air defense systems like Patriot and, and other systems. They started arriving or being promised after Sorovkin launched this very, very heavy campaign against Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. So okay, so it, there is a simple answer to that, is the Patriot system is a shield and the tanks and the fighters are swords. And the Americans have been tardy about giving Ukrainian swords. Shields, fine. Sure, but they gave but high bars. In... So, so here's what I've been able to determine so through the, some reporting on this. You, you yeah, look, make... look, look, the, the issue that's been, and, and, and this is, what, want, this is my I criticism of how the administration's I've got behaved. Evidence. I've they, got evidence. Well, I'm giving you the evidence now. I'm going to tell you what well, okay, but I'm I have been able to report. If you allow me. Well, no, we're, we're talking over each other now. So let me have my go, and then you can interject with your pearls of drunken wisdom. <laughs> So the administration loves to get out to try and neutralize a debate or an argument about giving Ukraine X. And what it does is it comes up with these rationales. And they're not quite excuses because they're grounded in some legitimacy. Well, we fear that providing attackums, for instance, is too provocative and escalatory, and that will precipitate a Russian response or retaliation, not just against Ukraine per se, but perhaps against other European countries, against NATO, whatever. Then they end up providing something that was hitherto seen as too provocative. The Russian response is to shrug or pretend like it never happened or to denounce it fire ferociously at the diplomatic level, but then to do nothing kinetic about it. And suddenly the US says, okay, let's let's keep climbing up that ladder. As of now, and even the New York Times reported this a few weeks ago, as of now, the real issue for giving Ukraine, for instance, long range artillery isn't these phantom red lines of the Kremlin. It's a logistics problem. It's a supply chain inventory problem. Attackums, as James and I noted in our last piece or last two pieces, are no longer being manufactured because there's an upgraded model called the PRISM. Uh, so whatever's in the stockpiles of in the US inventory, Lockheed Martin factories or other partner nations, that's it. And when we gave the Ukrainians HIMARS and multiple launch rocket systems, and we gave them the ammunition to go along with it, and this is just what you would expect through the sort of nature of military absorption. Ukrainian soldiers were so keen to fire at anything that moved, they were expending fairly expensive munitions at low value or mid value targets. So they weren't being economical. They're beginning to become more economical. And so again, this is the dance. It's progressing in the right direction. I had a source in the administration say they were, quote, very confident that Ukraine will eventually get attackums. And now you, you notice we're giving them these glide bombs, these rocket fused glide bombs, which have a, a range of what, almost 100 miles. So they're kind of like attackums, diet attackums, attackums light. Yeah. And that puts the top third of Crimea in targeting range. So I think all of this idea of they can't lose, the Russians can't lose Crimea, but the US no longer is wedded to these fears. It's all about how do we get this stuff to Ukraine and how do they use it most effectively? Yeah, which I which makes me a little more optimistic in the long term about Ukraine's prospects. Because if this security assistance had stopped, I mean, right now, as we speak, Zelensky has come out just meeting with EU officials in Brussels to say that we now have commitments from several European countries that to give us fighter jets. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to get them tomorrow. It doesn't even mean they're going to get them six months down the line. But now Europe is making a long-term investment in Ukrainian security architecture, not just for the sake of fighting against the Russian invasion, but just in the the distant future, right? By the way, I agree with the long-term stuff. In particular, the, the interesting country that we don't think about too much, but I'm wearing my orange hat, so I'll, I'll give them a, a, a mention, are the Dutch. Yep. Because uh, actually, they have a lot of money, and they are very, very angry about MH17. 
and my book Killer in the Kremlin is being uh, translated into Dutch as we speak. Nice plug. And uh, but also that there, I think one of the countries that have got uh, fancy American jets, F sixteen, and they will. Um, yes, F F sixteen, and they will. They're the people to watch in terms of being. Uh, if the British don't, the Dutch will send this stuff. Well, Mark, By the way, but, Mark Rutt said it was yeah. not off. Nothing was off the table. Yes, was, and, and, yeah, and so yeah. what's what's being driven here is a real sense of anger. It's basically Dutch political opinion says we've got to tell the Russians that what mm. you they made seventeen, in which I, I forget the number is. It's a horribly high number of Dutch people. The plane was flying from Amsterdam, right, uh, uh, to um, uh, Kuala Lumpur, and. I think it's like 150 Dutch people were killed. Yeah, it's so it's a huge political thing in Holland, and they're really, really going for it. So I had a drink the other day with a, some kind of intelligency person from a European country, not that far from here, who said that he was having a look at the American planes that were landing in various places with stuff. And when one of the offensives was happening. The Ukrainians were doing very, very well. He didn't say, but I, I'm guessing it was a Herson one. He said the Americans, they were sending something like six or eight planes a day. And then because the offensive was going so well, they turned it down to six or Amer- eight American planes a week. The second little piece of information is the Abrams tank. They're sending those tanks, but they're making them first. Now, if they were really keen on getting a move on, then they would change the law. And I think the Republicans, there's enough Republicans who understand that it's important for Putin to be defeated. They could get it through uh, Congress, whatever you call it. And that hasn't happened. A third thing, a Ukrainian friend said this, and he actually said it to my friend, Brandonchenko, the uh, Ukrainian soldier who arrested me on day two of the war because he thought I was behaving like a Russian spy. And... (laughs) He's still out on that one. I have to fuck off. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) By the way, read my bloody book if you think I'm a Russian spy. Of course, the way you look these days, you could be like an MEP from Ireland, you know, denouncing the native liberal Democrat MP. I got like a Mick Wallace aspect to him now. No, no, no! Fuck off! Fuck off! Fuck off! Russian agent or just stumbled out of a halfway house? You know. I am not a Russian spy. My book launch uh, for the paperback edition is being held in Kiev on February the 16th. You're invited, Mike. And um, Well, she would very well know because her birthday happens to be three days before, so that ain't going to happen. But <laughs> in due course. Uh, okay, due course. Uh, but um, the, uh, the on the invitation, it's embossed. You'll be getting it shortly. It does say no Russian spies. But my pal, That's the uh, my, my, my method for keeping that Russian spies voyage on. They're like they, vampires; they can't come in unless you invite them. Uh, the, uh, That'll do the trick uh, too. So um, it's like hanging the shingle. Way, the Irish need not need not apply, right? No Russian spies. That just keeps them out. I'm about to reveal my source now, and he is, I think, the head of the most effective and honor intelligence uh, service in um, the whole of Ukraine, and that is, of course, Max, uh, the owner of the Buena Vista. And the Buena Vista Intelligence uh, Service is way cheaper uh, and more effective. Just, just, for, just for context here, Buena Vista is a bar um, <laughs> close to the centre of Kiev, um, and it's full of 
drunken journalist like John um, and uh, from not all of them not all of them climb up on the tables and start dancing at one hey, it's not just me but there aren't that many others however uh, Max said to Vlad the guy who arrested me on day two we're like gladiators and the problem is we don't want they um, the emperor the Americans they don't want us to ruin the show too quickly because everybody will leave before the first half. They Now, Max is being beautifully cynical, but I think it is true that the Americans are very afraid of creating uh, an Iraq 2.0. They are, I would imagine, Jake Wallace is the national security guy, yeah? Sullivan. I would, sorry? Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan. They are terrified. What happened in Iraq was they got rid of Saddam, they decapitated Saddam, and then all hell broke loose. And this is what they're worried about Russia. They're worried about after Russia, after Putin. And this is a thing which means that they are part of the way they're sequencing aid. They don't want Ukraine to lose. They don't want Ukrainian civilians to die unnecessarily. Hence, they're sending all these these shields. But they worry about sending swords. Okay, but they are sending them. You know, I mean, they're getting main battle tanks. They're getting after a lot of delay. A lot. Yeah, but that, that, okay, so I am inclined, just in general, but particularly when dealing with the U.S. government, when people allege a conspiracy, I counter with What's just alleging confidence. A conspiracy? Well, you, a bit. I mean, a bit. That is no, a conspiratorial. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that often governments say one thing. And they slightly mean or do another. So when Joe Biden said at the State of the Union address uh, to the Ukrainian ambassador, you know, we're with you for as long as it takes, dot, dot, dot. What he didn't say was, but we'd quite like it to take a little bit longer because he doesn't he doesn't want to run. He doesn't want to. Okay, Ukraine has a victory. And then Russia falls into chaos. That yeah. is something that I think people are generally worried about. Certainly the British are yeah. worried about it too. Anyway, I've made my argument. Yeah, you I, disagree. But the, 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 I mean, I'm cynical about America and, and, you know, I'm a cynical Brit. Um, and me and Michael have talked along again. We've talked about how screwed up our countries are. And, you know, for all Biden's faults, I do not think he's a particularly cynical man. I think he's overcautious. I mean, part of the reason why I think Seymour Hersh's reporting on the uh, Nord Stream pipeline was such complete garbage was because Biden has always been cautious and he's been cautious yep. day one. If you do have an issue with Biden, it's the caution, it's the overcaution. And and one, one sec, John. One of the reasons why you can go back to day one and you can look at the weapon systems that Ukraine was given. You can also say there was a legitimate fear or that they, a belief in Washington and in London that Ukraine would fall very, very quickly. So therefore, there was no point sending weapons. Right. And there was also an issue that they didn't want to send advanced weapons because they thought if they send advanced weapons to Ukraine, that they will inevitably fall into Russian hands. That was definitely an issue with Patriot. Because Patriot is one of the most sophisticated systems, at least the Pac-3 is one of the most sophisticated systems in American right. uh, service. And it's a key, it's got anti-ballistic missile properties. So they don't want that falling into Russian hands. So they would not be supplying that to Ukraine if they thought that there was any danger of Russian. And there's there's also another aspect. Oh, so hang, on, hang on, hang on, John. There's another aspect to this, which is, and I mean, you know, I know this from covering national security in this country for more, more than 10 years. And God knows I knew it dealing with the Syria file and then what became the ISIS file. American policy is, it's or the American policy establishment. It's like a tanker in the middle of the ocean. When you want to start to change it, it moves by degrees very, very slowly. When you want to start to change it, perhaps in 180 degree opposite direction, 
it's going to take ages. And what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing from credible sources in government is a lot of the fears that we had about A, supporting Ukraine, B, doing anything to antagonize Russia in what Russia put a higher value on than any American ever did, which is conquering Ukraine and reconstituting, at least in part, if not whole, the former Soviet empire. These things have now fallen by the wayside. The arguments have collapsed under the weight of evidence, right? And the evidence is we have supplied things to Ukraine that less than 12 months ago would have been unfathomable for us to supply. We were talking about giving them javelins and how escalatory that was. Now we're giving them main battle tanks and now we're having a serious conversation about fighter jets. It's actually extraordinary what's transpired in the course of a year. Second, there is a legitimate issue about where do we source the stuff? How do we get it to the Ukrainians? How do we train them up on it? How do we know they're going to use it correctly and economically? Uh, And what's the cost? And yes, domestically, if you want to get into the political calculation, you have a Republican Party institutionally that is still fairly pro-Ukraine and the constituency, the voters are still pro-Ukraine in spite of the utter rubbish and propaganda they're being fed by people like Tucker Carlson. But the vanguard or the tip of the spear, if you like, in the Republican congressional element is the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world and the Matt Gaetzes of the world who are, in effect, objectively pro-Russian, right? Um, they, they don't want us to finance Ukraine. They don't want to send more weapons. Everything for them is couched in rebuilding America at home. True MAGA types. So there's a bit of a dance. There's a bit of a negotiation taking place. But when it comes to what Ukraine wants and what it has gotten. I keep referring to this anecdote because I won't forget. I received a shopping list from a source in Ukrainian military intelligence in April. And I was in Lviv at this point. And this is when I took the train without telling my wife to go to Kiev and saw you, John, in Kiev. Um, and that shopping list, everything on that list, I say nothing. I say nothing. everything on that list, including cluster munitions, which they're getting now from Turkey, everything on that list they've received. And at the time in April, I shared that list with people in the US military establishment, including those who were very bullish about Ukraine's prospects and didn't need any tutorial from myself about how awful the Russian regime is. And I was told, here's why they can't have X, Y, and Z. Everything on that list they've received. And look, you know, are they getting enough of it? Ukrainians will tell you, no, we, we need more, 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 more. But the answer is every time I open Twitter or I read the news, there's a new security package that's being announced, right? I mean, Biden could have easily completely turned off the spigot. He chose not to. And the other thing I'll say, and I'll leave it at this, yes, there's an element in this administration, particularly the National Security Council, which is still wedded to the conventional wisdom of February 23rd about escalating with Russia and the threat of the nuclear catastrophe that could be unleashed and et cetera, et cetera. But the argument that consistently has won out from last February until now, according to my source, is the president is presented with options. Here's what we could theoretically give, but here's why we shouldn't. And he persuades himself, I don't believe that. I think it's nonsense. I want to give it to Ukraine. And eventually they get to yes on on everything. Now, does that mean that the U.S. is going to be providing F-16 fighter jets? Not necessarily. But then again, the U.S. doesn't need to if the Europeans come through with their own airframes, which the Ukrainians are now seeming to make progress. I tend to be very cynical and pessimistic about what the U.S. government is doing on causes that matter to to me. But in this instance, I have to say, I have been pleasantly surprised at almost every turn. And even my frustrations, I understand why they're frustrations. Just getting from A to Z on certain things is a bureaucratic wrangle. And then it's it's literally finding the stuff in warehouses and figuring out how to how to get it where it needs to go. So I don't know, John, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, to agree with your assessment that this is all politically timed. And Ukrainian lives do matter to a great deal of Americans. And this country is in, I mean, as yours is, is in love with Ukraine's president, right? He has 
single-handedly carried the day and done way more than I thought he ever could do when I was there in January and his polling was what, 29%, 30%? All right, you're raising your hand like a good little boy, so I'm going to call on you. Uh, permission to Mr. speak. Mr. Sweeney. Aping the line in Blackadder. Permission to speak, no. Uh, <laughs> and then you just carry on. No, I think on Joe Biden, who not only do I admire, but my unborn granddaughter bet 500 pounds on Joe Biden to beat Trump when it was unfashionable. And then she bet £500 on John Ossoff, who I knew, and encouraged to run um, as as senator in Georgia. And still not born, she bet £500 on John Ossoff. And when both bets came through, my son Sam said to me, you know what, Dad, she can afford to retire before she was born. So so I like betting on Joe Biden, and I agree with you that caution rather than cynicism is the thing. However, I do feel I have heard this from enough smart Ukrainians, not just Max, and MP too as well, who they see these delays as be- they see that there is a problem with America's fears about after Putin. However, I think we agree more than we disagree about what's happening is that the truth is is winning through, that people can see that there is something barbaric about Russia. There's, there's a, a great friend of mine in London who's um, uh, who I think is conservative. We would never dream of discussing politics. But one day he said to me, I don't think we can allow Putin to get away with this because it's just so bloody barbaric. And I think that's filtered down through the British and European and American publics, and people get it, more or less, and that has fed through to the politicians. And secondly, that the Ukrainians have proved themselves to be, uh, the Ukrainian army, incredibly resilient and adaptable and clever and smart and good and reliable. They're great gladiators. And when we tell them, you can have this kit, but please don't use it to bomb Moscow, that they say, yeah, okay, that's the deal, and we'll stick by the deal. So I think there may there is an argument inside Washington as there's an argument inside Britain. Do we give what happens if we give something to the Ukrainians that causes Putin to use a tactical nuke? This is the the besiding fear. Now, I don't think that's serious because the Chinese really, really have said it very, very clearly to Putin, don't do it. But nevertheless, that is a sense. However, I don't think Biden is cynical. I don't think, and I do think, that as time wears on, all of these red lines are broken and the West says, no, go ahead, have some main battle tanks. Yeah, I mean, look, if the, fear, we, if the fear is, you know, we can't allow Putin to lose too much because then he's going to go ballistic, as it were. Um, it's why mean, Why put Crimea it's a timing. I don't why think put that's Crimea true. into play by giving them small diameter bombs? I, you know? I, I think that if they genuinely... Are you want- going to put your hand up? I think if they were genuinely worried about that Putin was going to use nuclear weapons, genuinely worried, um, and all the, by the way, all the messaging from both London and uh, Washington has been, we see no signs that they're going to do this, right? Correct. Explicit in this. If they were worried about this, then they wouldn't, they, you know, they wouldn't be saying, oh, well, okay, we can give them 30 high miles, but not 40, because that will be an unacceptable risk. I think if there was an indication that, you know, if there was this, and, you know, again, Ukrainians are very, I get why they're pessimistic, and I get why they're frustrated with Western weapons support. They don't care about the issues in warehouses. They don't care about absolutely anything related to oh the brits thinking about how are we going to resupply the royal artillery with m27 
Jeez, if, if we give all of ours away. They don't give a shit about that. And I don't blame them. I would be exactly the same. During the Second World War, when the UK was searching for weapons and for support wherever we could find them, we had the same arguments. The point is, that mm-hmm. just because Ukrainian feels that this is happening, it doesn't make it true. Right. And I get why they feel that. I would feel the same. And I understand the frustration because I think we should, I think we should be doing more. But I also understand that it's not just... And it's difficult for me because obviously I live here and I totally want them to do more but i also understand the, the realities of why we can't just for example in the uk just give them all of our challenger twos because that would not be politically acceptable and there's massive logistic issues there anyway i mean half of them don't work for a start and they drive yeah, the wrong there's a, there is a, a dispute between and amongst european countries and also the united states i mean for instance the closer you are geographically to russia the more inclined and particularly if you're in nato the more inclined you are to empty your stocks and give whatever you've got to ukraine because as the the argument goes one russian tank taken out in crimina is one less russian tank that can invade Tallinn or copenhagen or whatever right And that's something that, frankly, is not as pressing to the Germans and the French. But as time goes on, I mean, the greatest architect of Ukraine's security assistance thus far has been Vladimir Putin. Every time he commits an atrocity, the reason that Ukraine is getting the most advanced air defense systems from the West, including Patriot missile batteries, I have here's where I am going to be cynical, has, I think, little or less to do with the suffering of Ukrainian civilians and more to do with the fact that any number of Western diplomats and their support staff are currently in Kyiv. And every time Putin sends cruise missiles and Shahid Iranian drones into the city to bomb the shit out of civilian infrastructure, ambassadors and diplomats from a host of Western nations have to go in, into underground bunkers, right? I think, I think I'm, you're I'm, being too cynical about Yes, I, 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 yeah, about yeah, yeah, the American is being too well, cynical. Well, one of the sources for our article said exactly that to us. And happens to be a Western diplomat. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's fed, I think it accelerated the argument or the justification for providing these things. I mean, you know, I've sat with the same source and I've had the similar conversation and you're right. He did say it's useful because it gets across the, but I I also think it's more of a case of they more understand the pain of the Ukrainian citizens and Ukraine, you know, what it's actually like to live under constant air raids right because again it's terrifying especially when you first come to ukraine and i've lived here for 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 quite a while now so it doesn't i don't doesn't really affect me anymore but the first time you hear an air raid siren the first time you see a cruise missile fly past your apartment the first time you hear explosions in the middle of a major city where you walk down the streets every day and you see kids playing in a park and then that park is blown up by a cruise missile and there's a massive crater and there's broken windows all down the street you start to actually realize what is happening here is real and it's not just abstract and there are real people getting and killed it every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but also appreciate the last thing a Western NATO country can afford at this point, given how politically fraught and in some cases tenuous electoral support for Ukraine has been, is to see one of their ambassadors taken out by a Russian cruise missile, right? Because then the argument doesn't become, I mean, again, being very cynical, it's, oh, barbaric Russia, but also why the hell are we there? Why are we doing everything we're doing? We're, we're losing well, no, our own No, I feel... I have a source um, who is high up in the British Ministry of Defence, and he was angry about the cruise missile that took out the playground, the children's playground, and then and Taras Shevchenko Park. And there's no cynicism there. It was, this is too fucking much. Yep. So, so I think there is, your super tanker analogy is correct, and that, it, that America... And also Britain have been wrestling with the right thing to do with there's this, you know, you Putin's got nukes, 
and he is rash. That's what the KGB wrote about him in his file. If this guy's still alive, I'd love to shake his hand. What he wrote about him, according to Putin's own ghosted autobiography, first person, was that Putin was made rash decisions and he had no empathy for fellow human beings, right on both points. I suspect the author of that uh, brilliant character assessment is dead, um, killed by Vladimir Putin, but there we are. So I do think that as far as the Ukrainian position goes, the West has been too slow to give them the heavy metal they needed when they need it. And they need it now, and people are worried. And also the Ukrainians are are worried about getting fed into the meat grinder. Entirely different, for, my, for example, my friend Max said, you know, if, if you, you say to a 23-year-old, here's a fancy German tank which goes at 50 kilometers an hour, go that way, terrific. If you tell the 23-year-old, we want you to go to Bakhmut, where you will at some point be consumed by um, a Russian convict human wave, then you think twice about it, and that's what I'm hearing. There's a problem. It's a specific problem. It's a temporary problem. However, here's the positive, more or less. The West are getting it. We have to help Ukraine, and more or less our leaders are getting it, and they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, the U.S. is very down on the expenditure in resources and manpower that Ukraine has poured into Bakhmut to hold a city that is not in itself strategically important. Yes. Um, by the way, you, you, so- the United States, the United States does not wield a veto over the Ukrainian general staff's military planning. Okay, so so uh, you're being unfair to the Ukrainian uh, general staff. The word on the street is that General Zelushny thinks Ukraine should pull out of Bakhmut. Right, but at, after how many months of holding it, where you know, as you say, and, and it's Zelensky, and it's Zelensky who's saying, "I don't want you to to get out of there." And all I know is that far too many Ukrainians are losing people. I met uh, one of my two fell out, and the Ukrainians stuck it back in at the <laughs> dentist. I met a Ukrainian film producer. Who told me? By the way, my argument that you just stumbled out of a halfway house is not being filmed in real time. Then, which I, I'd hope so, this would be so a this, reason and flow of the soul. You can like, film producers are falling out now. My, my DOP is in is in Bakhmut. My head of photography, all, her entire fucking film unit is all fighting in Bakhmut, and right. there's a problem. But apparently, Zelushny and Zelensky are at loggerheads. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that. Zelensky's great success in London and in uh, Paris and in Brussels will mean he has the self-confidence to say, you know what, we can get out of Bakhmut because it's costing us too much blood. Can I just say, though, if they do withdraw from Bakhmut, they will have been they will withdraw when the situation has become untenable. So if you look at the north, right. Solidar has been taken. If you look at the south, the Russians making inroads. They're about to well, they're potentially about to bring the main road, the Ukrainians used to bring supplies into uh, Bakhmut under artillery fire, if they haven't already. So I think, I I totally understand where you're coming from, John. This is where the the problem with being, again, we are very, very close to this. If you look at, for example, Stalingrad, right? Right. The Red Army took horrendous losses at Stalingrad, but the German army took greater losses. And sometimes in war, you have to say, we are going to make a stand here and we are losing a lot of people. But the enemy is losing more. And this is, again, this is a horrible calculation to make. And thank God I'm never in a position to say, well, I'm going to have to sacrifice 10,000 of my own people. So the enemy loses 50,000. And also, I mean, to to cite our, well, my great friend and source, Carl, 
the quote-unquote military analyst in Estonia, well, you know, what, what, the, what the Russians have poured into, say, Volodar and lost is substantial. And it's, these are forces that can't be regenerated, including the naval infantry, right? Entire battalions wiped out by Ukrainian defenders there. So giving the Russians a false sense of bravado and confidence about their prospect of taking not just Bakhmut, but the, the outlying areas is in a way, you can justify it as it's a trap. However, there's no question that the Ukrainians are suffering, I would call it catastrophic losses. The Russians are suffering more though. James and I were privy to figures we can't say publicly because we were it was off the record, but it's staggering actually what the Russians have been absorbing, or I shouldn't say absorbing, actually just hemorrhaging. Uh, for this city that, frankly, I think redounds to the benefit mostly to, of Prigozhin, but clearly Putin wants a win. He wants a victory for the one-year anniversary coming the up. The other thing, talking about forces that can't be replaced, um, you know, look at, for example, uh, Prigozhin's convicts, right? Yep. So there were, if you take the Medusa reporting, which is, they're generally pretty accurate. They said that 50,000 of these convicts have been thrown to the, the battle in Bakhmut and the surrounding areas. Of them, uh, they've suffered 80% casualties, so 40%, uh, sorry, 40,000 of them are killed, wounded, or just, you know, gone missing. Yeah. So, and again, Wagner have said that they're not going to recruit convicts anymore for reasons that we've already discussed. But the other reason is that from what I read in Russian media and analysis of Russian media is that these, you know, recruitment trips, the Wagner recruiters were, were making to these prisons they weren't being particularly successful anymore because the word goes round that yeah. the, this is uh-huh. what happens if you so, join wagner you die you don't yeah. so therefore so by the way that makes me uh, an optimistic optimist in terms of of putin not being although of putin not being as solid as he looks and he does look solid and that's what that's what the evidence is but i think that information can get back. Information of course it does. right now, yeah, yeah. That, uh, the number of uh, Zach is the word for a convict, yeah. the number of, of Zachs who have been turned into Cargo 200, Soviet slang for a corpse, is so great, they're no longer recruited. But basically, the prisoners are saying, you know what, I'll spend yeah. another fucking five years in, the, yeah. in porridge, doing porridge rather than uh, get killed. Right. And- rough, figures, rough figures, by the way, John, rough figures for the, the convicts that actually survived to their six-month tour of duty in Wagner. Right. It sounded a dream to get out of the clink early to go to war that you think you could win. But once you realize that you can't win and you're just your hamburger. So 15 percent of how many were sent? Um, well, well so I, I'm talking about so from because obviously the, it's a six month term in Wagner. Yeah. And they started recruiting. Uh, well, uh, I remember. Well, we, hang on. We don't know when they actually started recruiting. We know when, when Prigozhin turned up and made it a publicity. Anyway, no, but 15, so so, but, but yeah, is there a real number? No, no, no. There's. Because obviously it changes depending on date. From the reporting from Medusa is that, that it was 15% of the convicts that were recruited by Prigozhin that were surviving their six-month term. Wow. Yes. So is that is that's an, a crazy f- losses. Uh, and the other important thing to keep in mind about the Russian way of war, when we count casualties, and that includes wounded, most of the wounded or those the seriously wounded die because there's yep. no medical intervention on the Russian side of which to speak. Whereas the Ukrainians spend every effort to save the lives of their wounded soldiers. Yes. I am, and James, we have to go to a bar and then curfew. I thought you, I, I mean, I, I just assumed this was a bar. I mean, you, you've been drinking. <laughs> it's, <all that>. it's, <laughs> house. it's not much different. I have to go to another bar where I'm I'm conscious that... You're I'm, wanted elsewhere. I'm, I'm conscious that I'm being rude to the people who've invited me to this bar. So each one of us have a little sort of summary thought, I think, before we uh, knock this on the head. Is there some great 
question in your mind? Well, you know, look, I don't traffic in predictions because A, I think that's not my job as a journalist. B, it's a fool's errand when it comes to war. But I will say the people I talk to, I mean, I'll speak from the American side because that's my beat and I, I cover national security. The Americans I talk to in government, particularly those who are in or recently out of the intelligence community, who were very, very pessimistic about what was going to happen last year, are now in some cases, coming out of Ukraine thinking, that's it, there's no way we lose this thing. Now, take of that what you will. I'm hearing very, very bullish appraisals about Crimea, which are not fanciful to people who would have once suggested the idea of retaking Crimea, which the Russians have entrenched positions in for eight, nine years now, is just ludicrous. Nope, not anymore. And the occupied territories in Donbass, also in play. Now, the one thing I think that we neglect to discuss. We talk about how time is not on Ukraine's side. Ukraine is losing the best and brightest, the youngest generation. On Russia's side, I think there tends to be in the Western sort of subconscious, this idea that this is a land of of infinite resources, right? Infinite oil, infinite gas, infinite missiles, infinite tanks, infinite soldiers, even if they aren't poorly trained up Mobics who are being sent off with carbine rifles from World War II or the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. But the truth is, and we've kind of alluded to it here, even the Zeks in Russian prisons are saying, fuck this, I'll take my chances getting gang raped in the shower than being sent off to Bakhmut, right? Eventually, if the estimation of Russian losses, which I think are half a million now, casualties, so KIA, wounded in action, deserters, fuck, defectors too, to the Ukrainian side, which we don't even know about. If that's half a million, when that number becomes a million, million and a half, two million, when it starts to hit at the level of the elites, right? And keep in mind that part of this war, this is a war of imperialist aggression, but it's also fought in colonialist terms. A lot of the people, the conscripts that were called up in the first mobilization wave, they were not ethnic Russians. They were not from the big cities. These are ethnic minorities, right? These are Chechens, Dagestanis, these are Buryats. These are people that essentially the chauvinistic great Russian kind of mentality consider to be less than human or certainly not part of the upper echelons of society. Well, There's restiveness in these regions as a result of this, right? When this war begins to affect people who have vested interest, either in the Russian economy, big business, government, even at the regional level, things begin to change. And I don't think this is a land of infinite plenty. It's it's not. They are going to lose. They're going to run out of their resources. And already we're we're seeing indications that they are in terms of their munitions, in terms of the electronics, which they're using black market workarounds uh, to get to, to source. But these things, they take a toll eventually. Yeah. And so far... And again, I've been pleasantly surprised and fairly optimistic about the cohesion at the Western level. Ukraine, it could be said, it doesn't have an infinite supply of materiel and finances, but certainly the tap is flowing and it's actually the stream gets larger and more intense as time goes on, which is a good thing. So if I have to, you know, kind of give an an overall view, as dire as the situation may seem at times, we have to take a broader perspective here. Ukraine's fortunes are are solid at the moment and perhaps get even better in three months, six months time. I totally agree. I'd also like to say that if you look at the records from World War II, you know, the myth that the Soviet Union at the time had unlimited manpower is not true. The, the Soviets were already 
beginning to suffer manpower shortages yep. about 1943. And they, they had to, again, they had to do a lot of conscription that they didn't want to. And they, some of the units were undermanned. So again, that's, that's part of the kind of the myth of, of World War II or the Great Patriotic War, as Putin likes to call it. And the other point is, again, we obviously, we're quite close to this story. Um, but if you go back and you look at the state of the world, this time last year, nobody thought no. that Ukraine would last this long. No. And if, if you could say to, to someone at this point last year that, OK, Russia is going to fully invade Ukraine, they're going to throw everything they can, they're going to introduce conscription, they're going to use every weapon system in their arsenal, apart from weapons of mass destruction, to try and crush Ukraine. And they would still be consigned to uh, the territories in the Donbass and on the uh, left bank of the Dnipro down in uh, you know Mariupol, in that, in that region you would, you know, no one would believe you. So again, Ukraine has done incredibly well compared to anyone's expectations and compared to all our expectations, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, we both thought Ukraine would win, but we didn't think that they would do as well as they did so quickly, I think. So that's my thought on that. In and sense- I think just a final comment, because remember the, the debate about what was going to happen and why was NATO expansion. Well, I would argue, you may, you, everyone who talks about the Soviet Union seems to forget the fact that it consisted of nations and peoples, including the Ukrainians, who fought on Russia's side in that war. Now all of these societies arranged against Russia. And unlike the Americans and even, I dare say, the Brits, they have a far more intimate acquaintance with Russian culture, the Russian way of intelligence gathering, and the Russian way of warfare. Because in many cases, their fathers and grandfathers fought in these armies, right? And now they're on the other side. It's a very flawed analogy to compare it to World War II, when, by the way, American Lend-Lease was helping Stalin keep his regime going against the Nazis. Let's not forget those little Englanders and Mr. Beanie. Permission to speak, sir. It's it's strange to be a schoolmaster calling on a student who tells me he has to fuck off to a bar, but I'll I'll do it anyway. I'll put myself. I I have some British six I'm uh, very much a a six former in spirit. (laughs) If not in years, I'm an optimistic optimist. I was an optimistic optimist in the Battle of Kiev because I just thought the Russians uh, they've only got two hundred thousand soldiers and they need to have multiples more to do this thing. And right now I'm an optimist. I'm even more of an optimistic optimist because I think the people who really understand Russian society are the Zeks, the prisoners. And if they're voting with their feet, as you put it so uh, sweetly, they're choosing to, to stay in the showers back in prison with the soap than to, than to die in Bakhmut. And I think that that one piece of information is the most interesting um, of our of our entire conversation. But also, thanks, thanks John. Uh, thank you. Thank no, but it was uh, my um, no. You you both came up with it. The, the, the numbers of yeah, the prison stuff. Is the, the, the numbers of um, of Zach losses are so terrible. Yep. They're no longer volunteering. They'd rather stand. They'd rather stay, stay in prison. They'd rather stay in prison than go to the war. And that down the track is great trouble. Means great trouble for Vladimir Putin. You've ended that on a very Sweeney-esque note, like your um, your Twitter. <laughs> well, I've noticed if you notice if you follow John's Twitter and his his Ukraine war diary, he usually likes to end on this sonorous note that mentions Putin's last name as the last word that he says, and it just it sticks, it rings in the ear, you know. I'll do it again. I have a simple message for Vladimir Putin, and it goes like this. Yeah, I know what's coming. Yeah. Vladimir Putin, do fuck off. I'm Michael Weiss. 
you've been listening to three drunken fools, yeah. <laughs> the ones known as Foreign Office. I'm not even drunk, but the two I of them. Drunk. I have yeah, James, I a tiny glass of wine that John graciously. You're almost gave. a teetotaling Brit, which is, I don't know, a very strange and disconcerting as a national custom. But anyway, I'm Michael Weiss. You've been listening to Foreign Office. My guests this week, James Rushton and Connor Cruz O'Brien in an orange hat. <laughs> Sorry, John Sweeney. He's Over the author all. of the new book, Killer in the Kremlin, which is out in paperback when? Um, February the 16th. February the 16th. And those of you in Kiev, uh, there's at least a few of you who listen to the show. You're having a party. The, the launch party is in urban space. And um, there are, I put some money, uh, or Vladimir Putin will put some money behind the bar. Okay. Here's Vladimir Putin now. I've got to go. All right. Have a safe and yeah, I'll, I'll speak to you later, but enjoyable booze fest. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.